with Shaky Town, I always knew that I wanted to write about these people, but they were so disparate. It follows about five different kinds of people throughout. The linkage for me has always been a sense of place. All right, we're back with Lou Matthews. We're going to talk about the incredible book, Shaky Town, which came out just last year, 2021. It came out on a little known imprint called Tiger Van Books. And before we start, I should just say that Lou, I don't think I did this justice with the last intro, but Lou is a legend. All the writers who write and do anything literary in Los Angeles have either taken your course or know you or read your book. And I now include myself in that class as someone who just loves and respects your work. So this book, Shaky Town, I don't understand why it was a hard book to publish, but tell us a little bit about Tiger Van Books and what their mission statement was and what their first release was. Tiger Van Books is essentially Jim Gavin. Jim Gavin is a former student of mine. He took classes with me in 2006. Tremendous writer. With the first story, I could see the kind of talent level he had. And I started thinking about what he should be doing. And one of the things I recommended to him was the Wallace Stegner program at Stanford, because it doesn't require an MFA. You can simply apply. Jim applied and got it, which is a miracle given the odds. He's always been grateful to some extent. He credits me with his career. He's completely wrong on that because he would have done it anyway. The weird thing was that at that point, he'd been a plumbing salesman like his father and then had fallen into a gig working for Jeopardy, Alex Trevec, one of his assistants. When Jim got his Stegner, he actually wasn't sure he wanted to take it because he'd just gotten to the point on Jeopardy when he was about to start writing questions. And he had his dream apartment. He has two friends who wrote a movie called Blades of Glory and were only in town about two months out of the year. So they're letting him have this $3,000 apartment for like 500 a month. So he had this great gig. And so he called up Stanford and said, can I put that off for a year? And they didn't know what to say. Nobody had ever done that. But anyway, he went up to Stanford. And after that, things started to happen. He met some great people, eventually published a story in the New Yorker, Costello, which made him gold in the sense that for a West Coast writer in particular, once you have the imprimatur from the New Yorker, things start to happen. And I believe that was probably the first story ever published in the New Yorker about Los Angeles that was written by somebody who grew up in Los Angeles. Most of the time you have what I call anthropology. You have New York writers that they trust who now live in Los Angeles who report back to civilization on what the natives are doing out here in the bush. But Jim cracked it. After that, he had a script for a marvelous television show, Lodge 49. And Lodge 49 had two seasons on AMC. It was a cult hit. It made every top 10 list in every publication from the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, LA Times, Atlantic, the New Yorker, name a magazine. They listed in their top 10 for two years. The two years was on the air. It never acquired the kind of audience it 
deserved. A new executive came in and scratched the series. But Jim had been living with what I'd been going through with Shaky Town for years. The book was actually finished in 2010. And in 2012, it went out. I had an agent, Sam Hayati at the time. Sam shopped it heavily for about a year. And the responses were of two kinds. The first was something like, this seems to be good writing, but we don't know what it is. In other words, it's a regional book. The second version was, this seems to be good writing, but we can't sell it. Oddly, the people that liked it the most were smaller publishers who said that they really liked this, but they knew they couldn't afford it because they wouldn't be able to get in the bid. And in retrospect, I'm thinking, oh, please offer $10. So the book was finished. And once you've shopped it, you're dead in the water. So I continued to write on it. And about 2018 or so, I did a different version. It is much like the Fat City story. Originally, Shaky Town was about, oh, 350 pages. It's now about 250. I ended up cutting out about six stories. And then when we're in the editorial process, I cut out about another 25 pages just by condensing. So it was a much more polished subject. And Jim had been talking to people at Prospect Park Books, Colleen Dunbates, who is a wonderful woman and did an admirable job for about 12 years. She ran Prospect Park. They were the only small press here in town that was publishing fiction at one point. She was a fan of Lodge 49 and Jim hit it off with her and talked about having his own rim print at Prospect Park. That was how it all started. And working with Jim and working with Colleen on the book was just amazing because there was no line by line editing. The only editing that was done was cuts. I mean, this is the dream for any writer to be able to see the book that you want it without somebody else's taste being imposed. By the time we got done, Colleen had been slightly burned out. She'd been working straight for 12 years. She eventually sold out to Turner Publishing, which is based in Nashville. So it's now this very complicated set of Russian dolls. You know, you have an imprint within a larger publisher, within a larger publisher. But it all worked out. Turner had nothing to do with the project in terms of how it looked, how it came about. We did all the design, we did all the editing, and they were just presented with a package, which they ended up printing up very nicely. The cover is an example of the kind of serendipity and help that we got along the way. The illustrator is a guy named Steve Powers, who's known professionally as Espo. He's a graffiti artist from Philadelphia. An amazing guy. He actually did the illustration for Jim's story, Costello, when it appeared in The New Yorker. And they'd stayed in touch. They really hit it off. And Jim was determined that Steve was going to do the cover. Steve loved it. And we started talking. We realized we had a lot in common. He's a working class guy. We started talking about the area. It's described as shaky town. It's an imaginary place, but it's loosely based on Glassell Park where I went to high school, Potter Noster, and where I grew up. 
I started talking about that. And then I started talking about some of the highlights of the place. And the biggest landmark of all was the Vandy Camps Bakery and the Vandy Camps Drive-In. And that's gone now, but it was built in the late 40s, early 50s, and is considered the finest example of modern architecture in California. It was just incredibly beautiful and had the Vandy Camps windmill. When I mentioned the windmill to Steve, he just went click and started to draw. It took Steve about two to three months. He was almost past deadline that he got it back to us. The only problem I will say is if you hold up the book and you look at it, what you need to do is actually put on a pair of dark glasses. Because what Steve had to say is that this is beyond signage that you see on a very dark night through the windshield of a car. And they couldn't get the black dark enough. But if you put on dark glasses and look at that cover, you'll see the way it pops. It's kind of startling. So he finished it and Jim kept saying, send me an invoice, send me an invoice. He never did. And he never has. In other words, he donated his cover. And that's happened all along the way. People have really stepped up and helped out from our launch to the press to people who just decided out of the blue that they wanted to do a profile on me, which appeared in the LA Times. And it's just sort of like, it's been kind of a magical run for a book that you couldn't sell back East. It's interesting that it didn't sell. So, and this is one of the things that I resonated with you on is that I had some trouble selling my book. My book is nonfiction and I got pretty much the exact same comments that you got, which was, this seems like good writing. We don't know what we can do with this. It was different. My book is hard to sell for different reasons than your book is hard to sell because it's a niche book about music, but I guess it is kind of similar that it was a niche sort of market. But I mean, I told my agent, don't send me these, but he said, it's unusual for them to compliment the book and then not try to buy it. I think part of the reason is, and you've alluded to this in the last episode and then in this episode, that there's a good deal of New York chauvinism, that that is the center of the world, and it certainly is the center of the publishing world. And as a native New Yorker and a New Yorker for about 30 years, I can confirm that New Yorkers view New York as the center of the universe. So it is hard to get them to buy into something that is about Los Angeles. If this book were about Brooklyn, yeah, it would be a no-brainer. Let's just talk about the book a little bit and the content of it, which one of the things I love, and I said this in the podcast with Eric, where we talked about this book, was that one of my favorite literary devices is the short story collection where all the short stories are tied together, because it's incredibly difficult to do. It's incredibly effective. When it's done well, you can see the work and it's still fun, but it's not that great. When it's done masterfully, you don't see the work at all. And your book is just such a fantastic example of this style. What made you choose that particular device? I don't think that I had a choice. I'm not a natural novelist in that sense. LA Breakdown is very much more a traditional novel, but with Shaky Town, I always knew that I wanted to write about these people, but they were so disparate. It follows about five different kinds of people throughout. The linkage for me has always been a sense of place. The model originally for me was Winesburg, Ohio. And following that, I would say Cannery Row, The Women of Brewster Place by Gloria Naylor, and a book by 
Pat Barker called Union Street. In all cases, the stories are linked by place. And in Winesburg, Ohio, the town itself is actually a character that comments on what's going by. And to me, that was kind of a wonderful approach. It's a pastiche, but it's more like impressionist art in that impressionist art or pointless art, to some extent, the viewer assembles the painting. You have smudges all over a canvas with air in between and your eye and your brain connect the dots, connect the smudges and make the painting. And to some extent, that was the case as well with Shaky Town in that you have all these disparate people and eventually they linked together. You somehow form that. And I think you come out of it with a fairly strong sense of place. For me, I couldn't have written it any other way. And I knew that early, early on. The earliest stories in this book were written in the mid to late 80s. So this is something I've had in my head for a long time. But the vision, was, it was always the same. It was always, you know, the linkage was going to be place and you have to get around to the people you knew in that place. Yeah, there's something I think that just is so L.A. about it. I didn't think of this, but place is the only thing that these people have in common. But it's probably the most important thing to have in common with someone. All the great movies about Los Angeles are like this, where it's three different things or four different things, and they all kind of come together. And that really describes the feeling of living here to me. I live in Chatsworth. So as the crow flies, we probably live 12 miles away from each other. But we live on different planets geologically, we live on different places. The weather where I am is different than the weather where you are. And all of LA is like that. And, you know, we could pick three other people that we know, and they all live in different places than us. And that is different than anywhere else I've ever lived or visited. Even, you know, New York, Brooklyn, and Manhattan are different worlds, but they don't have different weather. No. On the Tiger Van website, there's a long introduction to Shaky Town that was originally going to be part of the book, and then I decided to cut it. The opening line is this, Los Angeles is a city of a thousand villages. And that's really true. If you go to El Sereno, it's a different world. That's where you're a low rider. If you're the kind of bike rider that likes to thump on the fenders of encroaching cars, you probably live in Santa Monica. Some of these villages are tiny. They're, you know, maybe 200 people. If you go to Virgil, if you go to some areas of Adams, you will find these little tiny pockets no explanation, but it's been that way since the city was started. My family's been here a long time. Both my great-grandfathers were 49ers. I probably have more of a sense of history about the place than most of the writers you meet in Los Angeles. I'm fourth generation. Yeah, it's not like any place else. And that's a problem when you're dealing with people in New York, or as we rude boys sometimes say, Yorkles, that's what you're going to face. There's the famous New Yorker cover where the first two thirds of it are 11th Avenue and the Hudson River. And then the top sliver is just the rest of the world. There is nothing more true about the way that New Yorkers see the world than that photo. But yeah, Los Angeles, something about the history of this place, which is so rich and so diverse and so unbelievably weird. When I started learning about it was when I really started to feel at home here. I mean, being a fourth generation Angelino means that your family has basically been here since it was Mexico. Give us some interesting nugget of Los Angeles history. Well, the only problem is when you tell people that, well, you're a fourth generation, at some point in the conversation, there's a long pause and you have to say, well, 
gee, if you've been here that long, shouldn't you own a lot more than you do? And then you have to explain what happened, the family tragedy, which everybody has. My great-grandfather, Jacob Miller, made a fortune in the gold rush by running a freight line in Mariposa, California. He retired as a gentleman farmer to Los Angeles around 1870. He bought up about 120 acres of what is now the Sunset Strip. He also had the Pioneer Marble Works downtown. He's considered the father of the avocado industry because one of our uncles was a sea captain who did the route from Panama to San Francisco to LA and San Francisco. And he brought up a whole bunch of avocado trees from Guatemala. They didn't thrive downtown LA. My great-grandfather, Jacob, planted them in his little microclimate and they thrived. But he promoted the fruit. You'd have people for dinner and they would serve like six courses involving avocados. And then everybody got to take home a seedling. But in any case, Jacob died. You now have five sisters and one brother. Given us the Victorian times, the five sisters are left out of the planning part. Three of them went on to be successful businesswomen. Uncle Bill determines the futures of the family. And Uncle Bill, in his wisdom, decided to subdivide the property, which meant he had to mortgage it so he could install sewers, running water, lights, electricity roads. It's actually a pretty great idea, but he chose to do that in 1929. So basically we fell out of the money and haven't gotten any of it back. As I say, my mom was a school teacher with five boys. We didn't have any of the silver spoon treatment, except most of our padrinas and padrinos, our godfathers and godmothers were from land grant families, Sepulvedas, Villasenors, Picos, and of course, a lot of them ran out of the money by then, too. Very early on, I realized how Mexican a city Los Angeles is because it's been in my family. For people who aren't in Los Angeles, the godfathers that he just mentioned, his godfathers, those are all like major thoroughfares in Los Angeles now. And, you know, they're all exits on the highway. So. Although when we first moved here, my wife, who's from Manhattan, did pronounce it Sepulveda because she hadn't heard it pronounced. So, Lou, I got to let you go, but I have to ask you two more questions. One of them is, when I come to your house for a blues jam with your wife, will you make me a legendary toasted cheese sando? Absolutely. I did it three times this last week. It's getting out of hand. My editor from Turner was in town, so he had them. And our friends, Mary and Tony, were coming down from Portland, so they had them. And then my friend, Kate Hake, who I hadn't seen in a long time, I had to actually take them to her house. Can you tell our listeners what they are and um, why a stranger might know about them? <laughs> this is my notorious Sando. Every year, I go out to Whittier to pick up Hatch Chilies, which are delivered by the truckload, by a great outfit, El Rey Farms. If you want authentic hatch chilies, you got to go there. They're roasted. You get them by the bushel. Roasted, it costs you about 52 bucks. And a bushel, which is 33 pounds, lasts me about two-thirds of the year. But when we come back, my friend Olivia Sandoval, Olivia and I go out to Whittier to pick these up. And when we come back, we have to have our ritual. We have to pack up the chilies, which means you put them in bags and you seal them up so you can put them in the freezer so you can live through the rest of the year. But we save out some of the best of them. And after we finish doing all our packing, then I make these 
they are fairly incredible toasted cheese sandwiches. You start with a good bread, usually a potato bread or one of the country breads, a lot of butter, and you have Havarti on one side, you have Munster on the other, and in between is an entire hatch chili that's roasted, peeled, and flattened out. And you serve that with a very good Pinot Gris from Bonnie Dune Vineyards. And you're ha very happy for a day or two. If you give me notice, absolutely. I know about these because this was the beginning of the LA Times profile on you, was describing these sandwiches. For those listeners who are not in the Southwest, if you have not had a hatch chili, there is a hole in your life and you don't even know it. You've got to get here in the late summer, early fall and have a nice fresh hatch chili. It is something else. Oh, and Lou, I almost forgot the most important thing, which is why you're on this podcast. So after I read this book, I was going to reach out to you and ask you to be on the podcast, but you beat me to it because when I did the episode with Eric, I made a critique about your book. I said that the beginning of the story, The Garlic Eater, Mr. Kim is sitting and he's looking at a revolver on a green felt table with a lamp hanging over it. And I just thought that was just a little bit too noir of an image to be believable. Now, it was a little bit of a throwaway joke in the episode. I loved the book. This was just my one thing, but you wrote me a letter and defended that image. And I said, I will invite you on the podcast to defend it in person before our listeners. So go ahead. Okay. Well, as I say, Mr. Kim is looking down and he's looking at this green felt and it's got an overhead lamp. And other than that, it's dark. And yes, it is a dramatic image. But the fact is, if you go into any tiny grocery store in Los Angeles, the storeroom is going to be just like that. It's going to be stacked high. There's going to be one table in the middle that is going to be for all the unpacking. It also serves as the desk. It serves as the office. It serves as a lot of things. The green felt might have been a little bit over the top, but it may have been a pool table at one time. We don't know. You know, it's not really specified. I could put it in some pockets if I want, but the fact is you do remember it and it's the perfect staging ground for that 38 Smith & Wesson. I can't disagree with that. And thank you for defending. I love a writer who will defend notes. That is, <laughs> even though this isn't a note, this book is published. It was just an observation. <laughs> thank you so much. So the last question that we ask all our guests is to recommend two books for our audience to read. No restrictions, two books that you think people should read. One that's out about six years ago by Dana Johnson. Dana's a professor at USC. One of the best writers I know. She was in my workshops in 92. And I said, look, you got some talent. Her book is called Elsewhere, California. It is the best recreation of what it's like to grow up in this city that I know. It keeps having revivals. Alta the high-end journal just did a gathering to talk about that book, but she has a section as a little kid, she's eight years old going to the Dodger game. That is just brilliant. It summons up that entire area. The best way I can think of the other book that I recommend to everybody, because everybody should read this is Dennis Johnson's Jesus's son with a title taken from Lou Reed's song heroin. When I'm rushing on my run, I feel just like Jesus' son. Probably the most brilliant collection of short stories in the last 50 years. And I don't think that's going to change. Dennis Johnson wrote the introduction to the version of Fat City that I have. Dennis Johnson is part of an entire generation that was pretty much ruined by Leonard Gardner. 
if he could do it, it made it possible that you could write about a world that was so bleak, but he did it in a way that's beautiful. I mean, when you look at someone like Joan Didion, what's Joan Didion reading a novel about boxers for? And she acknowledges what it is. Thank you so much for joining me, Lou, and thank you for joining us and sharing this book with our listeners. We'll have to have you back for no other reason than I'm going to have to have some toasted cheese sandos. Okay. My guest next week is ocean expert Sandy Sheehy. We're going to be talking about Cynthia Barnett's The Sound of the Sea, which is a book about shells. And if you think you know about seashells, you are wrong, unless you've read this book, in which case you are right. See you next week. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and by Santiago Ramones, who has his own show called Bit Depth, which you should also check out. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. When you're dealing with people in New York, or as we rude boys sometimes say, Yorkles, that's what you're going to face. You know what? If we were in the same room, I'd fight you right now. <laughs> Remember the other motto, which is, if it didn't happen here, it didn't happen anywhere. <laughs>